Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. And we're going to turn our attention to the scriptures and we are going to ask the Lord if his Holy Spirit would please guide us into all truth like he promised he would in the scriptures. But um, rather than me reading them to you this morning, why don't you take a look at the screen? After, but this is not one of those stories. This is the grim tale of Ananias and Sapphira. The early church had begun to flourish, and all the believers were getting along quite splendidly. They shared everything they had with one another, claiming nothing as their own. There were no needy people among them. Those who owned fields or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to the apostles as a gift. Joseph was one such man who sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles as an offering. And oh, what a wonderful blessing it was to everyone. All the believers were encouraged and celebrated Joseph's selfless act. Well, not everyone. A couple named Ananias and Sapphira, who were counted among the believers, saw the way Joseph was admired and grew very jealous. He thinks he's better than us, they grumbled to each other. We deserve that kind of attention. They dwelt on it day and night. Finally, one night, they devised a plan to sell a piece of land, secretly keeping part of the money for themselves and giving the rest to the apostles. They would not necessarily say they were giving all of the money they received from the sale. They would just let everyone assume it, and presto, they would instantly be famous as self-sacrificing believers who surrendered everything to Jesus. So, with his wife's consent, Ananias sold the land, secretly kept part of the money, and brought the remainder to the apostles. But Peter saw right through Ananias, saying, Ananias. Why have you let evil fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor dead. Everyone who heard the news was filled with fear. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, Sapphira came in, not knowing what had happened. Everyone nervously watched as Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? The room fell silent. Yes, she replied. That was the price? Peter responded, How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test God like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. No sooner were the words out of his mouth than she also fell down dead. When the young men returned, they found her body. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. By this time, the whole church, and in fact, everyone who heard of these things, had a newfound respect for God. So, unfortunately, there's no happy ending in this tale, but there is a warning here to take God very seriously, dare I say, deadly serious. <laughs> I've often toyed with the notion of preaching a sermon series called The Worst Stories in the Bible. This is easily in the top three, don't you think? 
I mean, as, as, you, as you read the story, if, you, if you've heard the story before, if, or if this is, is perhaps the first time that, that you've heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira, that is a bad story. If you've been following along with us through our study of the book of Acts, it's been mostly good stories thus far. Yes, there was an arrest and some of that stuff, but, you know, the disciples still pulled it together, and, and uh, there was this, this clear sense of, of power and of the, the, the Holy Spirit and of the coming of the kingdom of God and this, this great wave of excitement and encouragement as the followers of Jesus are, are, are building into this, this great movement as we work our way through the book, and we're kind of at one of the high points where where we see that the followers of Jesus so loved and cared about one another, so trusted God that they were doing things like selling their homes and so forth, and just said, we, we understand that God's going to take care of us and that he wants us to take care of one another. It's, it's this beautiful picture of reliance upon God and of a real sense of community. You, know, you may remember from a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 2, where we learned that the followers of Jesus, then and now, the followers of Jesus commit, devote themselves to five things. First, to worship. Hey, we've already done that today. Secondly, committing or devoting themselves to community, to being a real part of an identified group of followers of Jesus, because it's by entering into that community that we find the strength and the encouragement that we need, but also it's within that community that we also find the accountability that we sometimes need to remain faithful. And it's as, there's a handful of other things, as I mentioned, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but five things that the church of Jesus Christ commits itself to, that every follower devotes himself or herself to, among them the worship of God, but also to faithfully participating with the people of God. And it's there where we find ourselves when we encounter the story of Ananias and Sapphira, this morning. That story, I think, makes everyone ask a handful of questions. And the first of them is this. Why was God so severe with Ananias and Sapphira? That it, that occurred to you? Or does it just seem like, yeah, that's a reasonable thing. You know, strike people dead. Okay? Anybody out there? I mean, honest, honest to goodness here, can, can Anybody confess with me that when you read the story, it seems like somebody overreacted in this thing, and it was either Peter summoning God's power to strike people dead, if a person can do that, I guess, uh, or that God himself just literally killed somebody for that kind of an offense? Yeah. You don't have to show your hands this morning, but how many people think, dude, I've done worse than that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very real question, I think, for honest people. Why was God so severe with Ananias and Sapphira? And this brings us back to the very beginning of the sermon. I don't know. I mean, I can, I can offer you some, some guesses, but I promise that all of the reasons that I might offer you this morning wouldn't resolve the thing for you. You would not leave here going home going, seems like the right thing to do, God. Just strike people dead sinning. So rather than offering some of those things, uh, I guess I could preach a sermon this morning trying to get God off the hook. How about this morning I'll just admit I don't understand why God was so severe. But I think there are some other things from this passage that the church needs to come to understand and some questions that we can ask 
right alongside the one that we may not get an answer for. Why was, was God so severe? I've, uh, I've read some folks who, who refer to this passage and really do the business of trying to get God off the hook. And they'll say things like, well, you know, the passage never says that God struck Ananias or Sapphira dead. And it never says that, that Peter, you know, called down the fire of God to kill them either. So maybe what happened is they got so convicted by what they had done that they dropped dead of a heart attack or a stroke. Okay, that's reaching a little bit, don't you think? Because, I mean, I have had some bad days on my knees before the Lord where I was confessing my sin, but I never once came close to the place where I thought I was going to drop dead from it. So think, rather than trying to, you know, explain this thing away so that it all seems really natural and normal, let's just take this thing of these two people who died and assume that the text seems to be implying that it was, in fact, God who had a hand in that. Let's just take this thing that we can't quite understand. Let's just put it over here for a minute. Can we do that? Let's take a look at the passage and see what else we might learn from it. I think if we take this thing and we place it over here, the severity of God in these two people being uh, struck dead, if I can't understand it, I think maybe I can ask another question in light of it. And that question is this, how precious to God is the church of Jesus that he would either cause or allow such a thing to happen? If, in fact, God was in any way culpable for the death of these two people, I think a reasonable question for us to ask is, how precious in the eyes of God is the church of Jesus that he would allow or cause something like the death of two people because as I have looked at the church over the years, as I have valued the church over the years, as I have assessed the importance of the church over the years, as I have devoted myself to the church over the years, it still doesn't come close enough to being important enough to me that if Lori doesn't act right toward the church that I might think God or I want are going to have to kill her. Never got close. Maybe some of you have been there with me, but I, I've not been there with you yet. Um, I think, it, I think it, it's a reasonable question for us to ask. How beautiful, how lovely, how precious and important in the eyes of God is the church of his son Jesus that it seemed like in any way a fitting thing to do to either cause or allow the death of two people who treated his bride as unworthy. This is a popular theme in my preaching. If you've been around much, you know where I'm going next. I'm going to talk about how much I love Laura. I love her a lot. I love her more than all of you. Um, uh, promised to a long time ago, right? And I think over the years, I've become a good husband. She had to wait a long time for me to grow up to become a good husband. But she's faithful, and she's patient, and she did. And I think that I have become a good husband. And because of that, if you don't like Laura, you and I are going to have a very difficult time getting along. 
just going to tell you whether this is me being a good husband as empowered by God's Holy Spirit or if this is still one of the, the areas in my life in which my flesh still has mastery over the Spirit. I'm just going to tell you if you, uh, if you make a move against Laura, you are going to make a move against Cliff and Laura, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to make it abundantly clear to you whose side of this deal I am on. Okay, because I love her totally and completely. If it needs to be, it's me and Laura versus the world, y'all. Okay? Amen. I think that's amen worthy. I do. But never in my life has it occurred to me that because somebody gave Laura the stink eye, because somebody spoke negatively about Laura behind her back, never have I thought, you know, I guess I'm going to have to kill him. But there's this God who, who promises uh, to be a faithful husband to his church. That, that's, that's real language from the scripture, that he would be a husband to the church. Jesus uh, and, and the apostles referred to the church as the bride of, of Christ. And, and because of that, there comes this expectation, as there does with every husband, that if you're going to speak about my wife, you're going to speak respectfully about, about her. And if you're going to speak to her directly, you are also going to have to speak respectfully. Ask each of my children if, if the respect for mama has ever been enforced in my household, because it has. And this is the part where if I still had all three Purcell kids home, I would say, okay, kids, repeat after me. The beat kids, and they would say, are the best kids because that's what happened when they spoke disrespectfully to their mother is the dad acted decisively. You are free to disagree with me about spanking and any of that, but I'm telling you what happened in the Purcell family history when the children might be disrespectful toward their mom. I made my move. It was sudden. It was decisive. And... Um, it was with emphasis. Yeah. And I still maintain that Jesus is a better husband than Cliff Purcell. And here's where the amens come. Yeah. Yeah. None from Laura. Excellent. Yeah. Progress, baby. Yeah. Yeah. I just wonder how, Im how important and precious the church is if, if, if metaphorically she is described as, as the wife of Jesus Christ, I wonder how important, how precious her honor and her dignity is to the God of heaven and earth if when somebody, two somebodies, spoke disrespectfully, conspired to deceive the church, if God came against them in such a way that they ended up dead at the end of the day, I think that the listener instead of uh, arriving at some sort of number that it's this level of important, or instead of saying, oh, maybe this story isn't true, or oh, maybe it's just a, you know, a tale to exaggerated to make the, the point. I think that the wise person, I think that the person who is trying to draw close to God had better ask himself or herself, number one, how precious is the church in the eyes of God? And number two, how have I been treating Christ's church? Now, I'm going to tell you, let me make this plain. I do not believe in any way, shape, or form that if you are disrespectful toward Christ's church today, 
that some prophetic voice is going to say, hey, call you on it, and then watch God do his thing and you end up dead. I don't think it's going to happen. Let me just put it this way to make it plain. I think that you probably, for this day, could get by with disrespecting Christ's church. Why do I believe that? Because I watch it every single day of my life. I'm going to talk about social media again. If you're, in, if you're active in social media, you know that I am too. I'm not much right now because during uh, the season of Lent, um, the season of Lent, by the way, is not about making sacrifices. Christians believe in one sacrifice. Jesus made it. But Lent is about us looking internally and repenting. Just trying to take uh, 40 days to look inside and say, hmm, what's the real condition of my heart? And I've found that um, social media is one of those things where it's easy for me to numb my heart, easy for me to uh, maybe blind myself. Because listen, if you're active in social media, you can see all the faults and sins of other people on clear display, right? So I decided not to look at that so that I could take a good hard look at myself. But if you, uh, if you take a look, uh, if you participate in social media of any kind, any day, um, you will see, if you have many Christians in your circle, that it has become a very popular thing to criticize and speak negatively about the church of Jesus in the hearing of absolutely anyone who will click on your page. Every day. I'm not, I'm not um, exaggerating at all. Every single day. There will be something from one of your feeds that makes its way into my feed that says 10 reasons that the church is whatever. Seven things the church is getting wrong. 15 reasons why millennials hate the church. Um, or, or it's the other end of the, um, of the age spectrum where here's what's wrong with church music today. Every single day, there will be some criticism of the church of Jesus Christ that just gets spewed out over the whole world and usually it isn't with these loving, caring tones. It's usually in crusader-like language that says, I told them. And I just wonder about this God who loves the church, who, who found the church so, so precious that he would refer to her as his wife. That's a tender and special and exclusive kind of love, isn't it? I just wonder what kind of a day it is that God has every single day when many of the followers of Jesus Christ talk about what a pathetic, ugly, toothless, old hag his wife is. I just wonder. Because it's the same church and it's the same God that we read about in the Ananias and Sapphira story. But as I have watched people again and again and again and again talk disrespectfully about Christ's church, I've watched them all. I mean, I just haven't done a bunch of funerals right after people post whatever on Facebook. So I'll just tell you, I think you can probably get by with it today if you decide that you have a lot to say about how horrible the church is. Let me also say that I understand that the church is imperfect and definitely needs to change and grow up and mature. And frankly, the church needs to repent of many of its horrible attitudes toward the culture around us. Amen? We've got a lot of explaining. We've got a lot of apologizing to do. But I take note as I read the, the story of Ananias and Sapphira 
that these two people who said, in the nice inspire, it said, were counted among the believers. They were people who said, count me, I'm a follower of Jesus. They were apparently part of this group that had said, um, hey, I want the Holy Spirit to come and live in me too, because that's how the, the earliest followers of Jesus understood the real followers of Jesus. The real followers of Jesus weren't people who simply prayed a sinner's prayer. They weren't people who put their names in a membership book. They were people who believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that his death on the cross provided adequate sacrifice for the forgiveness of all human sin. They believed that he'd been resurrected from the dead and had sent his Holy Spirit to live in the hearts of anyone who who is crazy enough to believe these ridiculous claims. Ananias and Sapphira were Pentecost people. Ananias and Sapphira were part of this movement that was changing the Middle East. But one day they decided that instead of faithfully being a, devoting themselves to the community, the community. You with me here? Those, those things that we devoted ourselves to? Instead of faithfully devoting themselves to this group of people that they had committed themselves to, that instead they would deceive them. Number two, they would seek promotion within them. And that they would publicly do those things, but secretly. You can picture the story, right? Peter and the guys, the apostles, gathering because they've got 5,000 people now that they have to, to manage and take care of. And next week, we're going to learn about another one of the, the aha moments in the life of the church early on where it realized I've got thousands of, we've got thousands of people to take care of and we don't know how to do it. Better turn and rely on the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn about that next week. But in one of those gatherings, one of these guys came up and just said, you know, I noticed how everybody's, how a number of people have been really generous toward the church and selling their properties and just giving the whole thing. And, and uh, well, and he, as the movie said, he didn't even have to say it. He just kind of, you know, let it hang there because that had become the common practice of the day. And he was telling himself that, because uh, he assumed he'd go home that night, that he could get home and say, well, I never said that I gave it all. And a little footnote at the bottom of the page, God, so I got you over a barrel. It's interesting that uh, when Peter, given this knowledge, you know, this prophetic understanding of this person's heart, he doesn't, he doesn't call Ananias out for cheating God. He doesn't call him out and say, you owe the church the rest of the money. Instead, um, this will make all capitalists very happy. He says, you had the right to keep however much of the money you wanted. Then he, he kind of takes the church out of the picture. He says, Ananias, I mean, you probably could have got by with lying to us. But let's just be real honest here. You weren't lying to us. You were lying to the Holy Spirit. So is the lesson from the story, don't lie or God may kill you? No. Is the story, don't lie to the pastor or God might kill you? No. Don't lie to the pastor, though. Please, it just uh, doesn't go well between us. No, what is, what is the whole point of this thing? The whole point of this story is that there was a man and a, and a woman who together had decided that this community of people called by the name of Jesus, filled with his Holy Spirit, were um, 
could be treated like any other organization on the planet. You could participate however you decided. This man and this woman had decided that the Church of Jesus Christ was nothing more than another human movement and could be treated like, oh, I don't know, a political party or uh, a service organization. That, that you owed it no more than you did the rotary in terms of respect. And as they viewed the church and acted toward the church, they decided that respect was, um, you know, iffy at best. Not required of the people of God. I don't think it was about lying. I don't think it was about money. I don't think it was about any, any of those things. I think that the holy God of heaven watched two people who said the church doesn't matter. And these are people who devoted themselves to the church. Said the church doesn't matter. I treat the church however I want. That God served notice to all of humanity about how precious the church is in his sight. We have absolutely no indication from church historical records that anything of this kind has ever happened again in all of church history in 2,000 years. We don't have any indication that God, that God a second time has moved to strike anybody dead because they treated the church with disrespect. But we do have this one record from antiquity, from the very earliest days of the church, from one of the first, maybe the first people who looked at the church instead of seeing her as this conduit of God's Holy Spirit, and just said, enough. If we can't answer the question, uh, why was God so severe? Sometimes we end up in the place where we say, well, I don't want to serve a God who is so cruel. Anybody, uh, you don't have to raise your hands, but anybody ever have that thing rattle around in your head or your heart after you read this story? I'm not sure I want to serve a God who's so severe is that? I have thought that, just so you know. But then this other thought came to mind, which I think has saved me, which was, well, if I believe God's that cruel, um, rebelling against him doesn't really seem to be a good option either, does it? Right? So it leaves us in this place where I think we have to ask a better question, which is this. Not how can I keep from getting struck dead by God? How can I learn to show honor to Christ's church in a way that ministers to the heart of God. Much of the time, let's, let's admit it, we are trying to get stuff from God, right? We approach this relationship to get forgiven, to get eternal life, to get his blessings on our finances, to get friends and support, to get peace. Much of, what, uh, of, of our involvement in this relationship with God is because we're trying to get stuff from him. But do you realize that it is possible for you to give something to the God who already has and owns everything? You can give something that blesses the heart of God. You can give respect and honor to his church in a day where that is not popular at all. Listen, anybody who has a good thing to say about Laura automatically is my friend. Anybody who compliments this precious woman over here, I already kind of like you. You do it twice, I will suspect that you are a really good person. I might even forget some of the things that you said about her in the past if you just say two good things in a row. When you start to show some honor, some respect for this woman over here, it does something to my heart because I am her husband. 
And when you do something that honors the church of God, the imperfect church of God, I guarantee you it does something to the heart of that church's husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. It will fill his heart with love for you. So how about it? If you could, uh, if it were possible for you to honor the church, would you want to learn how? I can teach you four little things today and we'll be done. The first is this. You want to honor Christ's church? Participate in it. Participate. Don't just show up once in a while. Showing up consistently is a way of saying to Jesus, to the church, and all of us, and to the kids who are watching, we think Jesus' wife matters. We think she matters a lot. So showing up consistently is the first way that you can, that you can show respect and honor for the bride of Christ. Show up and get involved. Number two, I've already alluded to it, quit criticizing. It's not as though um, the church is perfect or like we have to all pretend that it is, but you know the difference between criticizing and helping. You know the difference between constantly pointing out a person's flaws and coming alongside them and helping them change, right? You can do that with the church too. Instead of criticizing the church, how about praying for two things for the church? How about praying for the church's purity and its maturity? Can you remember those since they rhyme? That would be a way of honoring Christ's church. Pray for its purity. It needs to be more pure than it is now. Amen? Yeah. It needs to grow up. Amen? Yeah. So do I. So, and you too. And we're the church, right? How about instead of criticizing the church for all of its faults and all of its weaknesses, how about instead we were the people who when we speak about the church, we're speaking to God first and we are saying, Lord, purify your church and me. Lord, mature your church and me. We could do what it takes to help lead change instead of always pointing out how other people aren't getting it done. Amen, Cliff. Amen. A third thing, you could quit using the church to meet your needs but not putting anything back. Jesus used the, the, the metaphor of a of a grapevine, and it had, you know, there's the main vine. Just go over there and look. It, you know, our, the, where Laura and I live is the one of the church's parsonages. It belongs to you. In its backyard, are, uh, it, there's a grape trellis, and those grapes, as best I can tell, were planted by Paul and Marie Barber when they pastored here way, way long time ago. And this last fall, a bunch of you came over and helped uh, trim trees and do all that stuff in the backyard. And we trimmed those grapes down to the main vine. There's just a main vine and some stumps right there. But you know what's going to happen this spring? I do. Very quickly, it's going to start growing. There used to be three. One of them was in my way. I cut it off at the dirt. And uh, I measured it four weeks later. later. It grew 16 feet of vine in four weeks. I'm telling you, those grapevines are getting ready to do something. Here's what they're going to do. That vine is going to push out nutrients from the earth. It's going to push it out through some buds, and it's going to grow some long vines. And then guess what's going to happen? Those vines are then going to produce some fruit that over the course of the summer, that fruit will mature and become very sweet. And I'll offer it to you now, as I have many times in the past, Come and pick it. Laura and I aren't going to get to all of it. They they produce this crazy amount of fruit, just like the fruit trees are back there. Just come get it. But I want to use this metaphor to help us take a look at how it is that we might do the business of, of actually putting something back into the church instead of just taking from it uh, what you feel you need to get your spiritual needs met. 
The vine works like this. It's got roots. It goes down in the soil. It extracts the food and the water, and it pushes that out through the vine, the, the limbs. And those limbs then actually produce fruit. But get this. Those limbs and that fruit, they are not just sucking life out of the vine. They're also going to grow some big leaves. Grape leaves grow big. And those leaves are going to catch some water, and they're going to catch some sunshine. And God built them with these amazing little factories in there that go through this process called photosynthesis. And what photosynthesis does is it pushes nutrients that it manufactures right back down the limb and into the vine itself. That is a fantastic metaphor for the followers of Jesus Christ. We are plugged into the vine, and there is all that rootedness and all that access to the things that we need to have our spiritual needs met. But we are called to participate in this whole thing, not simply to suck the life out of the vine. The people of God who are given the privilege of being a part of the church of Jesus Christ are also called to put something back into it. It can be in any number of ways through service roles or leadership roles or financial giving. Um, That is not for me to figure out how God wants you to do that. But I just think that it would show some honor for the church of Jesus Christ. If some of us today would make the decision, I'm going to quit just taking and I'm going to put something back. Fourth thing is this. I've heard this said a million times in my life, and I think I have actually taught it to some people too, and I'm going to repent of that today. Here's the, here's the phrase. Fake it till you make it. As of today, I no longer believe that's a good idea. Here's the way that it usually has been, has been taught is uh, you understand this direction that you need to head in life. You understand this thing that you need to do, this, uh, uh, this turn over a new leaf, and you need to, to get active doing, doing this one thing. But your heart isn't in it. So somebody has said to you, well, hon, you got to fake it till you make it, meaning do the stuff of faithful actions, and, and in time, your heart will come along, and your feelings will come along, and then, um, you, then you'll like doing what you're doing. I think everybody who ever recommended that was, uh, it was sincerely trying to be helpful, and I think I've used that at times to, to kind of coach faithfulness in people, is here's the thing to do. You don't want to do it? Go ahead and do it. And see if maybe your heart doesn't change later on. And, and in the meantime, you're not being phony. You're just doing the stuff of faithfulness. And you fake it, and one of these days you'll make it. And I think that is some of the worst advice I've ever been given or that I have ever given to all of you. So I'll, uh, I'll ask your forgiveness for that. Because I believe that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a place where I can be the real me. I think the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be the place where I can be the imperfect me. I think the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be the place where I can be the me who is on his way but has not yet arrived at the place of maturity and love and um, ultimate goodness. I think that the church is supposed to be a place where the imperfect me is welcomed by the imperfect you. Is given grace and help and encouragement until together we grow up into the place where we can give ourselves with integrity to whatever it is that Christ has called us to. Today, would you join me in refusing to fake it anymore? Would you just admit where you are in your struggle 
and I'll admit to you where I am in mine, and together with God's help, we will encourage one another to faithfulness and good deeds as we are taught in the book of Hebrews. And I think by the example of the book of Acts. No more faking it till you make it. Get real and be real in the church of Jesus Christ. So what, what, how does that actually work out? I'm just going to tell you, I think you need to be a part of some small group of Christians. We have, we have connection groups here. We have different Bible study groups. We've got Sunday school classes. There is a way for you to get connected with a smaller group of people uh, to whom you can, you can say it when you're struggling, to whom you can confess your sins and have people pray for you. You can confess your temptations and have people not judge you but love you and take care of you until you gain the strength to overcome them. There's a group, we can get you connected with a group that will be okay with you having doubts and worries and fears and the people will surround you and love you and not talk bad about you behind your back. You have a group of people who help you stay on the path when your feet feel like wandering. I know one thing for sure about Ananias and Sapphira. They did not have a connection group. They didn't have one like mine. Because with my connection group, you can be the real you. And that group would never tell me, hey Cliff, hey Laura, we think it's a good idea. Just go present them. They, they, would never, they would never tolerate for one second the notion that I would disrespect the church of Jesus Christ. Instead, these are the group that listen to me in all of my complaining, all of my worries, all of my fears, all of my sorrows, and then encourage me to be faithful to Jesus and to his church. Now, I've said several times today, and I'm done, that I think today, you can probably get by with disrespecting the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, you, can, you can lie to us. You can, uh, you can deceive us without actually saying the word. You'll probably lay your head down on your pillow tonight and wake up again tomorrow morning. Today, I think you can get by, followers of Jesus, and disrespecting the church of Jesus Christ. But I don't think you will for all of your life. In the way that God seems to be administrating the universe these days, he has, he has placed a time out in the future, some day that he refers to as a day of judgment. I think that we got a preview of that for just a brief moment uh, in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. But I think there is a word of warning that needs to be spoken to the people who call themselves, who are numbered among the believers like Ananias and Sapphira. God loves his wife. He expects you to treat her with honor and dignity. Find a way to do that. And find help and encouragement from friends to stop doing the things that you know bring dishonor upon Christ's church. Because though you may get by with it today, there will be a day when you stand before the Lord whose wife you have dishonored. And the scriptures teach us that each one of us will give an account for every word we have spoken and every deed that we have committed. On that day, I want Jesus standing beside me saying, Father, understand his weakness. Instead of saying, that's the one, Lord, that spoke about your dear bride 
in that way. I like to talk in the, in the grand scheme of things about how God gives boundless grace to everyone. He does. We find it in Scripture. But we also find stories like these that say to those who are listening, two spiritual truths. Number one, you've heard me say it a bunch of times. Spirit, spiritual principle number one is what? God is not a, God's not a jerk. The spiritual principle number two, I've also taught many times, but probably most of you won't remember it. It's not as popular as spiritual principle number one. Spiritual principle number two is this. God is not a chump. God's not a jerk. But God is not a chump either. And he is not going to be mocked and treated with disrespect. So ends probably the least popular sermon that Cliff ever preached from one of the worst stories in the Bible. Yeah. The Church of Jesus Christ is the apple of his eye. And it would bless his heart. Cause him great joy if you would treat her with honor and respect. Stand with me, please. Lord, It took me too long today to say something very simple. I can't speak for anybody else today, but I know that there have been some times when I have treated your church in unholy ways. I've let my attitude sometimes get very sour. There have been seasons in my life when I just chose a lens that could only see the things that are wrong with the church. And I ask you, please, to forgive me. I ask you, Holy Spirit, purify the church and mature the church. In order to do that, you're going to have to purify me and grow me up a little bit. So today, instead of pointing out to you how, how, how horrible the church is, I'm just going to be honest about where I am. And I need the further cleansing of your Holy Spirit. And I need that push. And I need some of those tests and those trials and those hard things that will grow me up. I'm volunteering, Lord, for you to escort me out of the comfort zone so that I can be matured and purified. My guess is there are some other people praying that prayer today. Lord, Please don't repeat the Ananias and Sapphira story. I, this day and age, I don't know how we would respond to that. I thank you for a warning aptly spoken. Why don't you just talk to our hearts in, a, in the next moment of silence? about how each of us might need to respond. We listen for your voice. 
Once again, it doesn't take you nearly as long to say things as it takes me. You've spoken to me. My answer to you is yes, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I spoke with the youth group on uh, Wednesday night. One of the great loves of my life is teaching teenagers. And uh, a couple of us uh, spoke to the teens and said, you know, maybe between Wednesday night and next Wednesday night, what we talked about over there was peacemaking. So we charged the uh, teens in our fellowship of finding one way to actually bring some peace into a relationship in their life. Just look for one way, we said. I'm eager to hear how that's gone. And I would say to each of you in here today, maybe you could just look for one way this week that you could treat Christ's church with the honor that she deserves. I think it might be the best week of God's life if we did. Friends, go. Remembering that God has called you into a church that he calls holy and blameless. Let us treat her with the respect that she and her husband deserve. Amen? So may you know his peace.